Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is a conversation, something where we were talking about issues of the day specifically related to open source and open source business models, open source motivations, what makes open source projects works, uh, favorite topic of Cloud 2030. And we drew from that into testing, quality, maintenance, and ultimately into SpaceX and Tesla and how Elon Musk is transforming the industries that he's in by looking at the delivery process. And I know you will enjoy it. I was on a Keith Townsend uh, discussion about the VMware, um, the oh, VMware acquisition. Yeah, you do you even care? Is it touch your touch your world in any way? I guess Tanzu. Um, it hasn't touched my world in particular. That's largely also because I've been historically averse to VMware. Not because the product is bad, it's just uh, more or less uh, it's, it's more about the, uh, I prefer to support open source projects. Yeah, I understand. It's an interesting, this is one of the discussions I had um, on Keith's thing was open source makes a ton of sense, but when you get into enterprise sales, you still end up dealing with a vendor and a support contract where you have to take it on yourself. Um, I've actually found that in some ways harder to navigate. Um, yeah. Um, it, I mean, the, the, the sales part on, on, the, on more importantly, the, the support aspect of that, it, it it varies greatly by the size of the business. If if you if you're a startup uh, on budget is tight, uh, and that's historically my background, um, then I mean that there an enterprise license that doesn't really make sense, and um, so then we're we're looking at something that is. Uh, community supported, uh, right. with, with of course the the reduced uh, SLA on, on that, or at the least, or the, or the very least, like price in a startup friendly manner. Um, and that that's actually one of the, the the things that makes Elastic Cloud so nice is that, um, like if you if you don't have a big volume of of logs and metrics that you're shipping to it, um, you get all of the, the features out of it for free. It's just there's a very, very steep curve once you exceed that, because then you <laughs> right. then, then you go from basically, you just pay for infrastructure to, you pay for infrastructure and enterprise licensing. Oh. There, there's no in between. Yeah, it's it's, I don't know, because we made a decision, and sometimes I regret it and sometimes I don't, right? It certainly makes adoption a little bit harder to not be open source with what we do. 
Um, we're not open core, right? Huge amounts of what we do is open source. It just has a component of um, right the core. The core is closed because what was happening is people were end running our our monetization. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were also creating forks where we wanted to see reuse, um, and so that created. And anyway, it's um. Do do you th- yeah. do you think there's any particular reason why your code was being forked as opposed to reused or as opposed to getting contributions back? Yeah, I, I I'll, um. So that what what we had done was the core of digital rebar was was open. So like all the provisioning, the workflow engine, all that stuff, uh, the database, um, and then we'd been. Um, which is classic open source design, right? Um, we'd taken things like Raiden BIOS configuration and um, you know advanced OS installs and things like that and put them under um, license. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen is, is that we'd get vendors, and I mean, this is people like Apple, um, who would say, the core stuff works great. I don't want to pay you anything. Um, so we're going we're gonna to write our own um, BIOS configuration stuff. So all like, so th- what they were doing is they were literally just like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to pay anything. So we're just going to bypass. Um, and they weren't doing it like, Oh, we have a better way to, to do this. We're going to put it back in open. They were literally writing their own for private use. They weren't, there's nothing coming back upstream. Like it, it might've been more palatable if, Apple had been saying publicly, yeah, we use digital rebar and we're, um, you know, here's the way we provision bare metal. And we could have then incorporated that into the product and it would have been, would have been good, but that they were just doing it to avoid paying us money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then showing up with bugs and things they wanted fixed in core that, that, you know, sort of the answer of, well, you should fix that and we'll review it. It was, um, I, my experience has been getting people to make, changes to core platforms um you know you don't you don't have flybys on that you you have maintainers like what i mean in kubernetes there's a group of core maintainers who build kubernetes and you don't have people who fly through and do one a patch to a core component i don't think that happens in linux either um well i mean you're people are welcome to submit um like a pull request for patches, but uh, yeah, they, they all get rather strictly reviewed by a set of uh, basically permanent maintainers. Right. But do do the permanent maintainers like how many how many people are doing that type of um that type of operation? So, I mean, I could see maybe Linux. Go ahead, Rocky. Yeah, I was going to say on Linux, uh, if you've heard of Linux plumbers, essentially most of the plumbers are are trusted maintainers. And plumbers is a whole conference on its own within the Linux right. conference. But in most cases, in most, most open source uh, projects, which are like a library or um, an application or a utility or whatnot, it's usually one or two people, which is why there's so much burnout. 
usually the 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 guys the the person who started it or handed it off to someone early on so it's somebody who's been there forever right but but even even that to me is you know separating out the how do you sustain 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 the people and and sort of the momentum um, it's not sustainable, like you like you're it, implying. <laughs> but it, but it also, and this, this to me is for the type of software rewrite. So I'm not trying to pretend there's a general principle here. It's people are running in data centers, and they they typically for the core stuff they they expect it to work. If it doesn't work, they expect to file a bug, and they expect somebody to fix it. And and the idea that somebody would give us a patch for for sort of core behavior. Um, that didn't make sense. Didn't we? Didn't see it happen, and it, I don't. Ex, I don't expect it to happen that much. I don't. I mean, OpenStack and Kubernetes. I think it's the same thing. It's you have architects who are doing the core maintenance, and the extent to which those maintainers are financially incented by the companies that are doing that work, it, it's all aligned. Um, it's you know the place where you get Rocky. To your point, the place where you get people doing individual contributions are sort of more come in and, and at the edges or where you have, you know, the ecosystem components, right? I, I see Kubernetes with an incredibly vibrant ecosystem, but a lot of those are, you know, single vendor, you know, potentially, you know, low number of maintainers, potentially collaborative because now you're, you're a small enough scope of, of work that you could, you could have collaborators. Um, we, we tried to do that with OpenStack. It, got, it was harder. Well, um, and so to the point of Klaus's and yours of just somebody submitting a bug, back when I was at Ink to Me, hmm. we, yeah, we were cutting edge, uh, large amounts of traffic, uh, essentially stuffing the pipe as full as you can. And we had... Uh, we had Ultrix, we had uh, a couple of Unixes, and we were doing Red Hat. And this is 2002. And we found this, this literally ugly TCP IP in bug in Red Hat. Okay. And we fixed it and we proposed a patch and Red Hat refused to ex acknowledge that it was a bug or accept mm -hmm. the patch or fix it because, oh, well, nobody uses it that way. Nobody's going <laughs> to push the limits. Yeah. And so we, we couldn't get it into the release. And it's a core functionality that made TCP IP not work beyond a certain mediocre performance. <laughs> wow. Did you manage to then go upstream for it? And and I mean at that point it's going to take years. At that point, Red Hat was controlling ah. the upstream part of it too. So it was a it was a Red Hat man maintainer for that part of Linux. Because uh, in two thousand two, Linux was pretty. Yeah, it's like you could go oh, around him yeah. to Linus, but Linus doesn't know shit about networking, so he'd rely on his guys that supposedly did it and. Uh, so we just sort of uh, Red Hat became a second hat, second class citizen for 
anything we sold because they couldn't fix the problem that made them a second class citizen. Right. And that probably went on for like a year, year and a half. Uh, there were a couple of people even in Red Hat that it, that said this was a big problem and they couldn't get the folks in control of that chunk of code to move. Right. This to me is where from an open open source and commercial software, basically identical. Yeah. That's that's the you know, at least you could see where the problem was in trouble. In some ways, that makes it even harder. You're like, I know how to fix this. And and they won't they won't accept the patch. Um, and, and historically, that's also where the community encourages forking. Yeah, it's it's basically try like the 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 commonly recommended path is to um, open a, a like a a bug ticket and and if the if the maintainer says I I don't have the bandwidth to fix it, then you fix it yourself and you create a patch and you submit it and if the maintainer then says they're not interested in merging it. Then you fork it, right? But if you're, which makes sense, it, but if you're an enterprise customer, <laughs> and, and you're, you're either that enterprise is now sustaining that branch, that right, that fork, which is really not ideal. So it's really, really far from ideal. Um, or you are a vendor, or you know, an alternate vendor who is now maintaining a. a a fork, right? The enterprise has no real mechanism to get support from that that perspective, assuming they need support. Because now you're you're literally on your own fork with your own build process, your own everything. Yes, uh, I mean, it, it, if you're an enterprise, the the largely the um, there seems to be two general approaches to this. So one, one is the enterprise says, "I'll pay you to fix it." Uh, and they'll just <laughs> throw money at the problem, yeah, and, that's and, right. and eventually, like the material will, will say, like, okay, this is enough money for me to make bandwidth to, to fix it. Um, the alternative is that, um, and, and we we see this in, in the case of Red Hat and and, and and other companies as well, is that they end up absorbing the product because they they maintain it so much that that their fork is, essentially becomes the De facto, uh, hmm. uh, there's a, a rare, or I, well, I, I want to say, say say rare, just because it it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but when it does happen, it, it, it does generally make the news. Is also uh, the the third option where um, the enterprise put puts so many. Uh, like after either becoming the de facto maintainer or or at least uh, becoming a very prominent um, uh, submitter for for patches, um, in many cases the enterprise encourages the uh, the product to become part of a, a larger community, whether that's Apache Foundation or mm. CNCF, uh, just to. And, and in, th in those cases, it tends to happen that, that the product is popular enough that, that it gets uh, a large number of maintainers anyway. 
Uh, right. But um, yeah, it's it, it, it's not always clear cut what the what the end result will be. It, it depends but, on a lot of factors. Well, this is where I mean, Hashi Hashi has been really successful with um, Terraform, right? Terraform is still fundamentally maintained by HashiCorp. Yes, so, uh, and then and, and then the and the plugins they bootstrapped because they did those as consulting, um, they right consulting um, services before they were more vendor maintained. And while they do, so while they do maintain it, mm-hmm. their maintenance speed is not exactly something to write home about. Yeah. Like uh, they, they they've improved it since they they went GA, uh, mostly because they standardized their, their platform and, and decided to, to do backwards incompatible changes or to decide not to do backwards compatible changes. Uh, but yeah. it, it, there were cases where basically they acknowledged that things need to needed to be fixed, but they couldn't do it until the next major version came out because otherwise they. <laughs> You would break other things that, that, that had changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Spinnaker is kind of the example of the other side where it mm. was open software from the beginning, but it, it's owned by uh, Netflix and it became really popular. And then the community got really upset because Spinnaker wasn't accepting their their pull requests as fast as they would like it because for Netflix, it worked the way they needed it to work. And they didn't have an open source uh, maintainers team to actually take in stuff other than what they were doing. So it got really slow. (laughs) I don't know if it ever got fixed. They were, they were thinking about doing it. What I I suspect they, if the only way to solve that is to create an open fork. Um, right. I mean, that's right. 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 Sorry. Um, sorry. An internal fork. So tip, you know, what I've, what I've seen happen in corporate projects that go over, you know, jump over and become open source. They, the cost of them accepting a pull request means that they have to validate their internal use cases against the public version. Um, And that, that can be really expensive if you have other people's use cases surfacing. Yes. And so, yeah, a, an open fork would would be the right solution there. And then mm-hmm. there is the issue of the forced open fork, like with Elastic and AWS. Yeah. Well, or the reverse, right, where they're... Um, where they're... Um, I mean, they took things, they took things close. This is a problem, right? And this is to me, one of the fundamental problems with all of this stuff is that, and and we see, we saw this from our competitive position about what we were doing. If I was a service provider, the backend stuff wouldn't be open, wouldn't have to be open, right? I could open it as a, but there's no, there's no benefit. I mean, I I feel like GitLab has shifted, um, you know, their, their service offering is, you know, they're, they're doing a ton of stuff on the service side that's not, um, you know, they're, they're not talking about being open as much as they used to as they moved more and more into a SaaS and a product. Right. Maybe that's just a consequence of being becoming public. 
Uh, I mean, they're still very open in a lot of they do. They they're they're they really model a lot of behaviors that people are emulating now. But um, it's it's a you know I don't I don't see the same thing. And WordPress. I mean, I like there's a lot of examples. WordPress too. A ton of people use open source WordPress. I you know the company that maintains it, Atomic, Atomic, or um, you know you don't you don't see them. That is that's not the big selling feature. But right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, lots of CNCF products as well, like the Ambassador uh, Gateway or whatever it's called now. They keep changing the name. <laughs> um, uh, even HAProxy is kind of uh, dipping into into that territory as well. Like their their open source or the, the community version uh, is. But that their velocity is is much of of features added there is much uh, much slower than than the, the enterprise version. Like the, the incubate uh, features in an enterprise for about a year before it goes open source. Yeah, and I think the delay the del- is that is that delay strategy useful? To any, like, does that help anybody? Really? I mean, it's um, not- I, I guess it helps them pay their bills. <laughs> I mean, the, the, well, definitely. The, no, I mean, I mean, sorry, I, maybe I'm phrasing it wrong. Does, is that helpful as an open source strategy? Like, from my perspective, the delayed release to open source. Um, I, well, it's it's yeah. the freemium model. Yeah, it's premium. The other thing is, is it means that hmm. their team has. Uh, a chance to actually do some real testing on it before it gets released. So there might be yeah. a lower maintenance cost. Uh, it, it, also means, it also means it also means a much narrower audience. So like it, 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 if if you have a client with, with big bucks that, that comes and says, I want this feature, I'm gonna pay you to to implement it, uh having the, the smaller audience Oh, saying like, okay, only this client is, is trying to use this feature right now. You you can make the use case specific to that client, and then generalize it without having to uh, worry about um, like breaking uh, changes for the general community. You also have want the exclusivity at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, as I mean, from my perspective, the whole idea that I have people who are using old software—I I mean, our, I know our stuff moves so fast that if somebody showed up and was then asking for support on old, I'd just be like, "So bad, and so sad." I mean, I you could literally at that point you could say, "Yeah, if you're using old versions of the software, we're you know you're unsupported." I guess we already do that. That's what end of life means. Um, we have to draw this distinction just... between between bug fixes and, and and features. So, almost every company I, I see that that does the freemium model, they they do port fixes to the community version right away. Okay, but uh, the, it's the it's the added value features that are right. frequently gated. And, and those added value features, they're, they're basically the, the, the carrot to, to bring people into the, into the enterprise subscription. Right. No, it makes, 
it, it still strikes me. And I mean, this is for us. It For us, that was backwards because the core platform had to be so stable that the added, the, the enterprise features were basically the only way to disable a lot of them is to turn on, is to distribute the code with, with things turned off. And there's no way to, for us to, unentang- to disentangle enterprise and core versus the, you know, freemium version or the, what, you know, because I'd be happy to have, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of home lab, you know, small users going to town on community work and using the product. We're actually about to offer, introduce a, a long-term freemium models for people so they can um, use the product for free after, after trial ends. Um, it- it, for that it's reason, very but... difficult, uh, particularly with, with certain more virulent open source licenses, uh, to to include freemium modules in, in an open source product. Yeah, I mean it, it's not impossible. Like we, we see Elastic mm-hmm. doing it, uh, we we see uh, Kong doing it, we we see um, oh my gosh, what else? Uh, like even certain blockchains uh, that like well. Like for for example, the Polymesh, uh, okay. the, the which is the the blockchain uh, of the company that that I work for, Polymath. Uh, they it's it's not exactly a freemium model, but but the, the at at one point they had a proprietary blob, which was the essentially the, the governance component of the chain. Like happens to be topical as well to, to the subject of today. Uh, <laughs> now the, this this module uh, it it needed to to be at the time proprietary because of certain license issues. Uh, but the rest of the the, the platform that like the, the entire blockchain itself, uh, sans go- the governance module uh, right. is open source. Has to be uh, open source. So I mean, largely this is just a question for the lawyers saying like, okay, how can I split this in most cases <laughs> it, it is technically possible to do it uh, it's just yeah well, sometimes very difficult um right. cfs on, on linux is another example as well which which one cfs um the the um the file system uh that uh that's, oh, it, oh, okay. It, okay. It, it's sorry. Like, yeah. You, yeah. 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 I, I, you said Zed, uh, and I have to, I didn't, I missed oh. the translation. <laughs> sorry. It's cool. No, it's, it's CFS it, for it, you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, like it, it it's licensed uh, under, what was it, CDDL, I believe. Um, so, which was, Intentionally made to be incompatible with, with GPL. So oh, okay. Um, I mean, essentially, eventually, uh, like developers figured out that okay, like if if I create a module in a certain way that it requires this binary blob, it can still be GPL and then still include uh, <laughs> so in the distro, which uh, which Ubuntu ended up doing and. and Right. And a couple other ones as well, but uh, uh, it, it, it's it's a legal gray zone. But so let me let me step back to the the why though. Like, what's uh, I mean? When when I look at this, so you, you take ZFS and you say, 
I want to either you want to have software that is widely distributed, right? Used by a lot of people. Um, hopefully that improves your maintenance space or that creates commercial opportunity for you. Or you are, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it, that seems like the motivation. Otherwise you just sell it, you know, sell the, sell the software and maintain it. Um, yeah, I mean, self has technically like it, it wasn't about the money for them. It, it was right. a it, it was purely a philosophical disagreement with with the uh, with the legislators, like they, <laughs> they, 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 or or or, or with, with with the GPL specifically. They, like they, sure. they did not want uh, the, the, the 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 file system to to be uh, in their minds infected by 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 the GPL. So they they. So the the Solaris uh, maintainers essentially created a, a license that that was uh, specifically tuned to to be incompatible with the GPL. But I mean, but did that help them propagate the use of ZFS? Did that make it easier to monetize? Did that? I mean, it it actually seems like they're undermining their own primary adoption group um from that perspective because right oh i mean at, at the time at the time when, when they created it the, the primary adoption group was solaris users so they didn't right. care. um <laughs> fair enough I mean, they, essentially later on that 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 same license was used to uh in, in that lawsuit against uh NetApp when, when when they uh that's right because they used to use that as yeah or they, they probably still do under I mean, that was a big part of the whole um, uh, technical capabilities of, of NetApp in the, back in the day was was the journal file system. Yeah, yeah. And uh, later on, uh, other, other filers used CFS as well. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. I, I don't remember which one it was, though. Oh, that's kind of... Bother me now. Yeah, I know. I know things like the joint system, joint cloud stuff, really relied on on the filer zones and and ZFS. Um, it, it just like I, you know, I don't know. I feel like people will do an open source license, and it it helps with adoption. It definitely helps protect people from the vendor making decisions or. That, that you don't agree with, and it protects you from the vendor not implementing changes that you want. So you have the, the power of the fork from that perspective. Um, but the, the the forking, the cost of forking is super high. It, it is, yeah. especially if you, if it's a public facing or, or at least a exposed piece of software on, on in the world of uh microservices that that is more often the case than it's not uh that it the incentive for for staying up to date with patches is uh or at least to the the, the cost of, of the of the risk of not, of not patching in many right. cases it is is greater than than the cost of paying for a license I agree with you. It it feels like 
in a, in a lot of, from my interactions with it, people's expectation was that the community was going to do the patches, upgrades, and maintenance, regardless of whether people paid for it or not. Um, which doesn't always happen, but is... Um, Right. I mean, when, when we look, so when I look at us doing Kubernetes, say the idea that I'm going to just download the, the public distro of t- public builds of Kubernetes makes me very nervous, right? If I was going to sell it as a product, doing it as a demo or a proof of concept, that's fine. But doing it as a product would make me incredibly nervous because if there was a bug and I had to fix it, I would have to figure out all the build infrastructure. You know, I'd, I'd end up needing a distro. Um, You're more ethical than a lot of folks, Rob. I well, I I maybe, <laughs> but I I mean I still have to fix the bug, right? I mean, I, sure, I could I could I could do I could bypass the distro distro and certification process, but I'd still have to build and create my own version of it, and then put it. You know, I'm gonna have to deal with fixing it and putting it upstream and all the other stuff and having the expertise to fix it. I guess maybe I just don't expect any, any software product we embed to work long-term without um, something. I expect, I expect our customers to find bugs. Yep. Um, How much do the um, commercial Kubernetes distros do differ from, uh, from, the reference implementation. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't think very much at this I, point. Um, well, I bet you GCP does. Oh wait. Well, there's two questions. There's behind the scenes changes. Um, I mean, the APIs I think are this uh, right now very stable for commercials, but I, I I would bet that they have specialized builds. Yep. Um, it's an interesting question. Well, at least uh, folks like GCP would, AWS would, um, so the big cloud vendors would. Uh, then the question is uh, somebody like IBM or something like that, or Red Hat, would they? Is it really though a difference hmm. it from the reference implementation, or is it more that they add bells and whistles? So not necessarily just bells and whistles, like you're talking about features. So they could add features that a specific client asks for and not um, put that out in the public domain. Uh, there, it, it's in for many for smaller companies. It's a trap for larger companies. It's a benefit that they have a team that can can do that sort of uh, essentially customized uh, uh, work for hire and not have to feed it back. I, I'm, I'm thinking though, on, on the other hand, that the. The Kubernetes architecture is modular enough that um, if you need to add features for specific customers, 
uh, for the for the most part, I we it's it's gotten to a point where the the core of Kubernetes, like kubelet, the the kube proxy and stuff, they don't mm -hmm. need to be modified because you 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 have CNI, you have CSI. Uh, right. You have the operator frameworks. You, you have the validating webhooks. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm again. I'm, I'm not saying it's not happening. It's just that I'm, I'm finding it hard to conceptualize a, a, a situation where it would be necessary to to, to make such changes. Unless well, this is this is one of the things I think me. Kubernetes has done really well is that they have as a community identified um, integration points that that were supposed to be uh, broadened, right? And, and or, you know, good, you know, inter the integration, integration points that needed to be abstracted. I remember in the early days, I was in the meetings where, you know, a lot of things had been wired in um, for, actually for Amazon, <laughs> even as a Google project, they were like wired in for Amazon. Um, DNS providers, um, and there was not a good abstraction storage was another one, networking another one. And so they, the, the community did a good job abstracting those out, I think in part because the cloud vendors needed those abstraction points. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, and so that I think has worked out pretty well. What, but I, I suspect if you looked at it, um, those vendors would, um, I don't think they distribute or use the community builds of the core um, Golangs. In some places, it's just not hard to build your own Golang. Um, hmm. It's a super interesting, it's an interesting question to think if, so like I looked at the Amazon EKS service, like where you would download and install Amazon EKS. Um, and what, what they did was um, they installed their own containers. Like they wrapped everything in containers and then you download the containers to run. So I think you do kubelet, which I believe is probably pretty standard across everything. And then they ran their own containers for everything else. So they downloaded Amazon specific stuff. Um, which I think is what everybody's doing. Like Red Hat, you download your own containers with the Red Hat build pieces. Um, well, Tanzu certain does the same. OpenShift, sorry, OpenShift. Um, hmm. um, I, I wonder how hmm. how much drift there is these days between EKS and, and let's say a, a cluster provision with, with COPS or Something like that, because architecture-wise, they, they do look very similar. I I would bet the contain the difference is zero on the core binaries. Um, I think that they might include other containers, or they might build sidecars, or they're gonna. But I, you know, I think this is the magic. What what Kubernetes has done right is I I think that, um, I think that the code base itself is pretty solidly consistent um, makes one wonder that's whether, a hunch it's a hunch yeah. I, I don't have any any real validation on it i, I mean i i i would certainly agree with that like uh, it, it's one of the, the the reasons why i 
I do like Cornell so much is that that like they, they've made it very extensible. Um and, and at the at the same time, uh self-healing. Um so sure. best of both best of both worlds. Um it just makes me wonder though, uh, like going back to the topic of governance, what what the role of CNCF is going to be and in open source in the years to come. Because they they've they've basically made themselves a, a powerhouse. And uh, <laughs> yeah. um but uh like are they, and they're certainly in, in their or at least apparently in their in their golden age right now. But uh what will happen if or when they, they start stagnating? Yeah, like like we used to hmm. talk about OpenStack hmm. 2.0, and <laughs> lots of folks yeah. said, oh, Kubernetes. And so talk about Kubernetes 2.0. What, what's on the horizon? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's <sighs> necessarily question. Kubernetes 2.0. Um, right, but still, it's like, what's on the horizon to take over uh, where Kubernetes hmm. currently is? Well, if you had, if you had asked oh, uh, people oh, about this two years ago, um, a lot of them would have said serverless, but uh, that seems to be fizzling <laughs> these days. <laughs> or, or at least uh, seems to have been edged out by edge. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think serverless is, it just requires so much additional infrastructure. It's not a, it's not a standalone technology. That's a, I mean, this is what drove me nuts about the whole conversations with serverless and everybody was all so excited about the next computing paradigm. And it was clearly not a standalone technology. Um, I, I think that the, the biggest problem with serverless wasn't the wasn't the concept or, or, or the technology available. I think the problem was the developers that that hmm. um, we didn't we, yeah. we don't have enough developers uh, building in or writing code in a mindset that fits into serverless. The, the, oh, it's this, a hard, it's a hard, it's actually a very hard paradigm to program, yeah. which yeah. the other thing is that people overlook. Yeah, like it, it, it's so much easier to fall into the, the monolith trap. And, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, as a result, I, I think uh, that's, that, that was, that's the, the, the big roadblock to, to adoption. Uh, same with edge computing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to be the same case. I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of things that make edge a much more challenging problem. And it has nothing to do with writing the code. It has everything to do with building an operating environment. That's, I, I mean, I guess if, you know, if you look at Kubernetes, the brilliant thing here is that it's actually, Rob. sorry. It's called architecture. It's architecture. Well, yeah. but I think it's architecture and, and so few people who can architect. Well, but it, I, I think the operating environment is also a factor with this is that, Right. A lot of developers, I'm, I'm generalizing in a, in a horrible way, um, but I, I think developers want simple environments where they can write lines of code that have, a, have an effect, input, output, you know, and, and know that it'll get deployed in a reliable way. Rocky, to your point, architecture is a factor, but I also think that the operational, this is my bias towards, right, the operational environment that that code executes in is also 
you know, you, it's part of the, the architecture, it, Rob. It's part yeah. of the system. And people, most software developers don't have either don't have architectural experience and don't care about architectural experience. It's like I can build, I can design my app. And designing an app is not the same as architecting a system or architecting multi-system uh, ecosystems. And There's also the difficulty in, in reproducing the environment. Right. Um, like it, it, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're writing for serverless applications, uh, then either you're running your own serverless stack uh, or you're using a a cloud offering like Lambda or, or, or whatever. Um, and setting up a, a, like a test environment or integration environment for that um, without the architectural knowledge, which is what you point out as well, is very difficult. And so that's on right. top of that, I think that um, as other folks and other discussions have pointed out, digital twins is really going to become critical, but the whole concept of designing a digital twin is extremely difficult for a lot of folks because exact understanding exactly what a digital twin is, you're sitting there going, and so you get people saying, it's a digital twin where it's, <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> and so the, so yeah, the, it's a, it's a difficult space. Uh, and in fact, I think you're going to get more people out of both the uh, lower level coding world, like firmware and uh, hardware and even chip design. Plus, you'll get uh, Aero Astro folks who understand unified systems. Uh, that's where the most successful large edge projects are going to come from and tesla's just not going to be able to make it because they don't understand the whole uh being able to adapt to an ecosystem out there they just sit there and say oh we'll we'll do ai we'll do machine learning to get the cars to drive it's like no it doesn't do that it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, they're they're seriously lacking in quality control, both on the software and hardware side. Oh, they fired all their quality people uh, <laughs> a decade ago. Literally, a friend of mine was there. She's been gone at least a decade from there. You don't. The, Tesla's not a fan of people who say no, <laughs> or who slow things down. Or you slow things down. I'm I'm actually surprised that more of the spaceships haven't blown up. Well, I mean, the, mm. to to be fair, they 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 seem to be designing their, their spaceship by by blowing them up and then iterating on on why it blew up. <laughs> that, um, that's true. Yeah, they they actually test a failure, which is great. But I'm still surprised that more of the ones actively out there haven't because what I've heard about SpaceX is is very similar to what I've heard about Tesla being a uh, sweatshop. Mm, yeah, That's they're true. very cutthroat mm -hmm. is what I hear. Um, yeah, it's... 
I mean, they're, they're definitely driving innovation, but uh, yes, it, it is at the at the cost of quality and uh, and human quality. And that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons I think you see the Volvo line and uh, the uh, VW, Audi, Porsche line of cars, the electric cars, I think, are going to make fast inroads in the Tesla market because Teslas don't work half the year in Michigan, <laughs> but <laughs> Volvos and Audis do because they figured out how to keep uh, battery power and operations working in the cold, whereas Tesla never thought about it because they were based in California. California and <laughs> Texas, yeah. It's like, ah! Uh, now, in their defense, which is something that you're not going to hear from me very often, admittedly, <laughs> uh, in their defense, uh, Tesla does have to be credited with um, basically bringing the automotive industry kicking and screaming into the new century. Yes. They, in, in that way, they are very much the, uh, the I won't, don't want to say typical, but it's the typical San, uh, Silicon Valley startup. They show it can be done, but they also show the pitfalls. And so uh, a mm-hmm. lot of startups, they do all this cutting edge stuff and then they fail and the stuff ends up in real production systems with people making money off of it about five to 15 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what, and I think what we're seeing at this point is the traditional car companies that had forward looking research are starting to come out with uh, the stuff that Tesla showed the way. And then these guys are sitting there going, Oh, we can do that too, but we can do it right. <laughs> yep. <coughs> Excuse we'll, me. We'll see. I'm I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Tesla either. Um no. but I, I I do think they're they're uh they're challenges I, I I have trouble with any any company who I feel like is is succeeding unethically. <laughs> um and so that's I you know it's it, it is very hard to to tip their hat. They are doing stuff on robotic manufacture, and they're and actually the thing I find most interesting with SpaceX is not the rocket, but the manufacturing innovation behind the scenes that goes into building those rockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I I think that that is um, you know one of the things that. That his his industrial engineering component of of considering, you know, his supply chain and the process and things like that, I think are are brilliant. I, I think they've evolved into that though. I think that they didn't start there. Um, right. And and Rocky, I, I agree with you. The, um, you know, I, I think quality quality control and things like that are are not their not their first intent. Mm-hmm. Um, although maybe they're looking at it very differently than we're than 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 other people have, and they have you know, better processes or they have, um, you know, destructive, maybe destructive tests. They, I know they wouldn't have the repeatable results they have landing rockets, which is incredibly hard to do um, without some very stringent um, 
controls in, in the system because any any defects there there is very especially what they're doing the the falcons um those boosters land with no fuel right there is no room for there's a word for this i'm, I'm blanking on the word where you you basically land the, the the whole trajectory is designed to land with no fuel in the rocket and so they don't have any chance to hover they literally just drop right. um no air so the, the yeah. thing is, is that SpaceX is based down in L.A. where there are lots and lots of aerospace engineers. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these trade-offs where you can spend your life doing boring stuff, working for uh, Lockheed Martin or Rockwell or some of these others, or you could actually be allowed to spread your wings a little bit and and show what you're capable of if you go to SpaceX, but it's going to be a real grind. It's a grind, yep. Mm-hmm. But you know the they've got really smart people working on it. It has nothing to do with Elon. It's these people that were given a bit more, given a bit more of their head to actually make things work that other folks weren't willing to try because they're too conservative. They also had the right timing. Because because the space industry before SpaceX uh, was very, it it had stagnated. I mean, there was was no space race. Um, Pretty much the the most exciting thing before that was Virgin Galactic with their... uh, That's right, space plane. Yeah. 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 Um, And, And there needed to be enough finance available. There are lots of there are a lot of these aero astro folks that I know that were that are here in Silicon Valley and they were doing all sorts of startups with small satellites. Mm. But the key is that the the folks who think big in ecosystems and systems like the you know, everybody has been all the aerospace folks have always dreamed about getting back to the moon and being the people designing it. But yep. if you don't have enough money to manufacture test units that you can blow up and say that's part of the cost and we're accepting that and we we know so we're not going to go into bankruptcy because our tests have exploded, yep. uh, you're not going to get there. And so SpaceX had enough money to do the manufacturing that a lot of these companies couldn't have done. It's I, literally there, there's a, there's another there's another thing that that SpaceX does, yeah. and I, I Elon gets credit for this. Um, is they will launch with bad designs, and also acknowledge when their designs aren't aren't good enough. Mm-hmm. Like there was, I just listened to a tour of of the facility. Um, and these are fascinating at, at the meta level when you listen to how he talks about it. He's looking at the, the booster that they're going to launch. And he's like, yeah, the fins are too big. This is wrong. This is wrong. And so you've got somebody at the very top who is willing to come in and say, we're changing the whole design, right? Take a radical idea and change the whole design. And then what's, what's fascinating for them is they'll launch anyway, with with the wrong design to get data and they're like yeah we're we're gonna we know this is gonna blow up we know it's not gonna and we're changing it but we're we're going that philosophy from the top down is um 
I think it's actually disruptive. Not it's clearly disruptive to the space industry. It's been disruptive to the car industry. I think it's it's much more disruptive um, in a positive way than than I think we've we appreciate at the moment. And I, just to bring us full circle, one of the things about open source communities I think that is is very challenging is they do not navigate fast. Right. Well, so. The, the must disruption is actually a business disruption, which is much needed because he's one of the few businessmen who will say, this is a, this is a non-optimal design. And instead of just saying, cut our losses and, and go back to something else, it's like, well, let's learn from our losses. It's, we've got this anyway, we've spent this money. So let's throw a little bit money, more money after at it so that instead of it being money down the drain, it's money on lessons learned. Mm -hmm. I, I do wonder that's how our, a business disruption. I, I do wonder, however, how much of that is actually Elon Musk versus uh, the people some meet. people behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. Um, ah, but, but going going back to, yeah. to what, what it's Rob empowering the people behind the curtain. Yeah. But yeah. Going back to what you were saying, Rob, about the yeah, like the like the the practice that the, that they're doing, um, it almost feels like SpaceX is doing CI/CD with physical components. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They're doing the the small iterations, and the it's like every build becomes a real build. But and, but one of the things one of the things that Klaus that you're highlighting about CICD that I don't think people appreciate as much is that CICD is not a one a moment thing. A good CICD is actually a continuous deployment process, which means you have old things deployed while new things are coming into the pipeline. Yeah, which and, is what you do your integration testing, you do your unit testing, you do your repression testing, you do your end to end testing, right? And, and, but that's, that's all exactly the... what Musk has. Mm -hmm. But that's flying... a SpaceX has, yes. Yeah, SpaceX. It, yeah. He's flying <laughs> the, the uh, Falcon 9 while they're getting the heavy lifter out on beta tests. But, but even and the heavy lifter, they, they, the they, are, they are continuously testing and processing old models of the lifter while they're making the new model. Like they're, they're exactly. continually iterating the design and their whole system is designed to accommodate the fact that the new ones coming off are different than the ones that they're, they're currently testing or, or, or shooting or, you know. Yeah. Um, and they, they're continuing to use the old designs that actually passed muster and all the, in between ones are still used for testing and whatnot. So they're testing and they're deployed. They're just not deployed to, uh, to production. production. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, so, I mean, yeah. what's st stacking it's, it's the learning, the learning, the inherent learning mechanisms in these organizations are, are really breathtaking um, and exciting to watch. Really, really interesting. And this, and, and that I think by accident, because they built the rocket factory on a public road. <laughs> but going back to the the yeah. um, the open source and it not being a fast iteration, that's because everything's so large and there's so many moving parts 
by the time, if, but part of it is you're looking at infrastructure, which is a large system. All those little apps go fast, but I, infrastructure yeah. doesn't move as fast. I mean, the, the, there's open source projects and then there's other open source projects. So it, <laughs> the, yeah, they, 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 they vary greatly by, by velocity. So it, I, I don't feel like we can make a general, generalization that open source is slow. Um, oh boy, this yeah. is this just is because, actually a whole. This is a, this is actually. I think I'm going to set this as our next week's topic. Yeah, because is open source fast or slow? Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, how many I like this. changes go into a Kubernetes release versus how many changes go into a library release? And at this point, with CI/CD. Look at your Linux machine and see how many times you're actually doing system updates. Uh, how many times you're integrating new software into it. It's like I'm on my second one today, which is at this point, there are five different uh, uh, binaries that have been installed into my Linux system today. And it all still works. <laughs> Well, yeah. but it won't for long because Firefox just updated. <laughs> this was fun. I, I I I love the freeform ones. Actually, talking to y'all about stuff in general is good. It, good it times gives my my mind a good little uh, <laughs> jump start in the morning. Hey, yes, definitely <laughs> need that. All right, everybody, talk to y'all later. Thanks, guys. Wow, what a fun conversation. Sometimes these unscripted off-agenda conversations where we sit down and talk about things that we think on really deeply, open source, Kubernetes, uh, electric cars, industry in general, develop and test, really turn into very powerful and influential conversations. Um, just a couple of us in these calls uh, today, and, and that's okay, but they would be even better with more people. Uh, we love to get new perspectives, and I hope that if you've listened to the conversation to this extent, you will come in and join us at the 2030.cloud. Uh, be part of these roundtables. Bring your thoughts and ideas. I want to hear them. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.